Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. But off the top of this hour, uh, we got word over the weekend, CBC News was reporting, uh, that the Liberals are set to announce legislation. We'll table this legislation, or at least it'll be announced during the week of April 10th to finally legalize marijuana. Now, it's been a while since the Liberals were elected. Uh, some promises have been broken along the way, and there have been those who I think have become a little bit worried that maybe this promise would be dropped too. Uh, but if these stories are accurate, the Liberals are finally going to get around to doing what they promised to do. Now, of course, don't forget they had set up a task force. They got former Liberal Justice Minister Anne McClellan to chair that task force to study the issue. So all of that process had to take place, and then that is going to... I guess, form the basis of this legislation. So sounds as though we'll be getting it soon. The goal will be to have all of this done and complete and have marijuana legalized by Canada Day 2018. Now, the story also indicates that there's going to be a, a lot of flexibility for the provinces when it comes to the regulation around marijuana sales. Sounds like the feds are going to set the, the minimum age, which would be 18, to buy marijuana. But otherwise, it'll be up to the provinces. What's interesting, too, is that we've seen a real industry uh, start to emerge in Canada, uh, due in part, I guess, to regulations around medicinal marijuana and how patients needed to obtain that. So there are companies in Canada, a number of companies involved in the production of marijuana. Story today is that with this story from the weekend about legislation, uh, we're seeing uh, some of these marijuana companies, their, their socks storing to, uh, soaring today. Mid-expectation that we are going to see a legal framework and that these companies are going to play a big role. But do we know that for sure? Anyway, joining us uh, for some thoughts on this transition period, if that's what it is, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Cam Batley, who's Executive Vice President of Aurora Cannabis, uh, based here in Alberta. Cam, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. How are you, Rob? Uh, doing well. Although I guess uh, Aurora is uh, certainly present here in Alberta, but I guess uh, this is a, a national company, isn't it? It is. We have clients from coast to coast. Uh, we have our existing production facility an hour north of Calgary. Uh, in Cremona, and we are building the world's largest cannabis production facility at Edmonton International Airport. We call this Aurora Sky, and it will be 800,000 square feet, uh, bigger than 16 football fields. And in addition to that, we're also in the process of acquiring another production facility in the Montreal area. So Aurora is very much a national company, and uh, you can probably imagine that our ambitions are beyond that as well. We plan on being international. Right. Well, okay. And, and certainly this also speaks to then, I, I guess, ambitions beyond merely serving medicinal marijuana demand in Canada. I mean, that's, that's the reality right now. That's what your company exists to do. But there's anticipation then that this will be a, a, an easy transition? I think it will. And what we heard from the federal government now is confirmation of what we anticipated. And it's good news. And that is that the timeline for legalization is on track that we will see legislation introduced next month. Uh, 
uh, to legalize the consumer use of cannabis uh, and to regulate it. Let's, let's emphasize that. They're not going to be creating a free-for-all and that that uh, legislation will be passed and that implementation will be done by Canada Day 2018. Uh, has it seemed as though maybe that, that commit w- was up in the air? Has there been a lot of uncertainty in recent months around this? I think anytime you're looking at doing something as significant as this, there will be some people questioning whether it can get done. But I have to give the federal government credit. They have been very clear on this from before the last election. They put this in their election platform, and they uh, put it into the throne speech once they were elected, and they have been very, very consistent since that time that they plan to get this done and get it done before the next federal election, which is in October of 2019. Uh, And more than that, they've been very clear about their policy objectives here as well. They wanted to create a well-regulated and smoothly operating system to create a legitimate market where right now there is nothing but an illegal market. And their policy objectives beyond that are to protect kids by keeping cannabis out of the hands of youth under 18 and also by ensuring that the profits are legitimate. They go to legitimate organizations and not to criminal organizations. So you have to give this government credit. On this file, they have been really clear and really consistent. All right. Well, what what kind of communication though has existed between your company and, and the government? Did you uh, were you consulted during this task force process, or uh, have they reached out to, to you and other companies to, to see what involvement you might play? Through Aurora, and also I also sit on the board of directors of Cannabis Canada, which is the industry association for Health Canada licensed producers. We have been in regular contact with the federal government and now with the provincial governments as well. Um, to provide what expertise and insights that we have, let them measure that and decide what to do with it. And the task force report uh, under former Minister Anne McClellan uh, that came out in the fall, uh, I think was, was really an excellent piece of work. It was a very mature uh, report that was based on an awful lot of work. They talked to everybody that they could think of who could be a stakeholder in this. Uh, and so what we're likely to see is a very well-ordered, very well-regulated system once legalization is implemented. And that's not really a surprise, as you had indicated. Canada has the world's best, most successful, most well-developed medical cannabis system. And on that foundation, that very strong foundation, we are now going to build the world's best consumer legalization regime that will be uh, highly regulated. It will allow for... Uh, large, medium, and small companies to participate, and individuals as well to grow their own if they so choose. Um, and it will be workable, and it will be sustainable. And that's really important. We, we get one chance to get this right, and the world's eyes are upon us. Well, look, I mean, it seems logical that the companies that are currently set up to, to produce this product would, would be the ones to provide the the supply for a legalized recreational market. But we, we don't yet know for sure, do we, on, on how governments envision this working? We won't know until the legislation is actually tabled. But the indications from the federal government are that they were very favorable to the report uh, from the task force on cannabis legalization. And if, in fact, the government proceeds according to the the framework, the the roadmap, if you like, put together by the task force, then, yes, indeed, licensed producers like Aurora will be playing a central role in this. Right. Well, as it stands now for medicinal marijuana patients, they, they, they get the product directly from companies like yours, correct? That's correct. The only legal way currently in Canada to receive cannabis is with a doctor's prescription for a medical condition, and then you establish a relationship with a licensed producer like Aurora, and our products we ship uh, via mail or courier. About how many patients are you currently serving? Do you know offhand? 
Well, we're a public company, so I have to give you our last disclosed number of patients, but the, the last disclosure that we made within about the last month was that we had more than uh, 12,800 registered patients. Uh, and we've been the fastest growing licensed producer over the last year. We only started to sell medical cannabis in January of 2016. And since then, we've set a blistering pace, the fastest rate of patient registration of any licensed producer. And that has helped us become the second largest cannabis company in the world. Our market capitalization on the Toronto Venture Exchange uh, is now more than 10 times what it was only 12 months ago. So it gives you a sense of how quickly things are moving in this sector. Okay. Now, obviously, a big difference then with recreational marijuana would be that there's going to be an intermediate. There's going to be some kind of, of storefront. I don't think consumers will be ordering directly from producers, or, or might that still be the case? Actually, yes, they likely will. One of the recommendations uh, that I think is very wise of the task force is that the existing mail order system for medical cannabis be expanded to consumers so that individuals, whether they be in Alberta or in Nunavut will have equal access across the country. And that actually might be a good way to start the legalization process because it would have no impact immediately anyway on local communities. And it would give a little bit of extra time for provinces and municipalities where needed to figure out the details of what uh, retail distribution will look like. Now beyond the mail order system, we do anticipate that there will be standalone cannabis shops. Uh, and once again, consistent with the task force recommendation, we anticipate that most provinces will not choose to co-locate uh, the sale of cannabis in the same physical location as alcohol. And there's some good reasons for that, not least because there are a number of people who use cannabis for harm reduction, people who've developed uh, dependence on alcohol, and you do not want to be sending them to liquor stores to acquire their cannabis. Right. Well, and, and perhaps in some cases, these will be government-operated uh, marijuana shops that maybe we'll, we'll see private shops. I know there are those hoping that what operate now as dispensaries will become retail marijuana outlets, but th these are very different models. We do anticipate that the, the retail models will be a little bit different from province to province. Um, we do have the precedent, if you like, of the dispensaries that are so common in Vancouver and Victoria uh, and that have been... Uh, have been managed under municipal regulations to a certain extent by the municipal governments. Um, I do think that that would be a good thing. Then people would have access to the expertise that they need, well-educated people who understand the plant and its effects and the different strains. Um, so I would be very favorable to that kind of a retail model. Well, and, and just to pick up on that point, because, yeah, there, there are a lot of different varieties and in, in strains of, of marijuana, and uh, certainly your, your company and others who have been doing this for a while uh, know the difference. Mm -hmm. So what, what are we anticipating when it comes to the retail side and the kinds of choices that, that consumers will have recreationally? Well, let's start with Alberta. Alberta has a deregulated system for the sale of, of liquor, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's most likely that we'll see something quite similar with respect to cannabis. In other provinces, it's possible that the provincial liquor control boards will play a role, either in high-level regulation or at some uh, level of retail sales. Uh, so it's a little bit early to know exactly what the distribution systems will look like from province to province. Um, but the, the, the one thing that we can be certain of is that there will be a continued massive investment in this area. There will be continued economic development and employment this is an area where Canada is the world leader, and it's kind of exciting for us to be in that position. The world, I think, trusts Canada, Canada to get this right. 
All right. Well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, Cam, we appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. It's my pleasure. All right. Take care. Cam Batley is uh, Senior VP with Aurora Cannabis. Uh, certainly one of the leading medicinal marijuana companies uh, in Canada. As mentioned, they're building this uh, massive new facility uh, near Leduc, near the uh, Edmonton International Airport, 800,000 square foot facility. Uh, they say is capable of growing about 100,000 kilograms of high quality marijuana per year. So this is currently licensed, sanctioned as a, a medical marijuana operation. But this company and others feel that they're well poised, well positioned, uh, to make that transition and to be the suppliers of a legal recreational marijuana market. Because once it's legal, I mean, it's going to have to come from somewhere. Now, I guess there may be the option for individuals to grow their own up to a certain amount. We'll have to wait and see what's in the legislation, but also how it's going to be sold. There's going to be some allowance for provinces to figure out works, what works best for them. You heard the guests suggest that maybe we stick with, at least for a while anyway, uh, the mail order system. The way it works right now, medical marijuana patients need to go through a licensed supplier like Aurora Cannabis, and the product is sent directly to them. Is that something that could work uh, at, at the, the recreational level, the retail level? Uh, it might seem awkward. You wouldn't do that, I don't think, if you wanted a, you know, a case of beer or a bottle of wine for the weekend. Send away for it and uh, hope that it gets there in time. Uh, this company, though, by the way, uh, according to one story I read, they've got uh, an app, a smartphone app, for the uh, medical marijuana users who do business with them. And they do same-day delivery in both uh, Edmonton and Calgary. All right, so how should this work? What's it going to look like? We've got a model here in Alberta for how alcohol is sold. It's different in other provinces. Uh, do we apply the same thing to marijuana? 403-974-8255. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. 403-974-8255. So according to this uh, CBC article from the weekend, uh, now, I don't know. Look, I, maybe the government's leaking this uh, to the support of the CBC. I, I don't know. But there, there are a lot of details here. So it says, CBC News has learned the legislation will be announced during the week of April 10th and will broadly follow the recommendations of this task force that was chaired by Anne McClellan. So, regarding individuals who want to grow their own, Canadians who wish to do so would be limited to four plants per household. Now, in terms then of, I guess, where seeds would be available, presumably the same place you would buy the marijuana, whether you'd be allowed to resell that, whether you'd be allowed to give it to, to friends, I, I guess that's unclear. But once the legislation is tabled, then we'll understand how this is going to work. Uh, and whatever black market still exists, how are police going to deal with that? So some questions to how this is going to work. Look, obviously, there are some jurisdictions we can look to, uh, like in the U.S., that have done this, that have had a few years under their belt of doing this to get an understanding of what works and what doesn't. But I think the fact that we're going down this path, that we're recognizing the prohibition has really been a disaster. Uh, and in particular, certainly it has been uh, a real infringement on the freedoms of consenting adults. But it is time to, to go in a different direction. So I'm curious to see all the details that are coming within the next couple of weeks, we understand. All right, let's go to the phone sometime for your calls here. We'll say good afternoon to Mary. Hi there, Mary. <laughs> Rob, it smells green. <laughs> Not marijuana green, money green to get out of debt. Well... 
Okay. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I there's mean, going to be some revenue raised by this. Sure. You know, they, they want to follow Colorado. Yep. They want to follow Washington. They want to follow, but I am telling you, I don't want to follow high drivers on the highway. It's bad enough with the drunk driving and the speeding. Yeah, that's a legitimate concern, Mary. Appreciate the phone call. I mean, look, as it stands right now, impaired driving, all impaired driving is illegal under the criminal code. Uh, whether you're high on alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, painkillers, antidepressants, whatever. So regardless of whether we legalize marijuana, that's still an issue. Let's not be under the illusion that nobody's using it right now. How big a problem is it, first of all? Right? I think we need to look at uh, each drug and, and look at it separately. What are the risks of that specific drug? Obviously, alcohol poses a lot of risks when it comes to two people getting behind the wheel. And it's an ongoing problem. You could say, well, yeah, but we have technology to catch drunk drivers. Right? But that's, you know, often after the fact. And it hasn't made the problem go away. Are we bringing on a new problem here? Well, if you're going to argue that we are, I guess you're also making the argument that, that we're going to see a, a real significant increase in marijuana usage rates. I'm not really convinced that we are. Right? I think most people who use marijuana are already doing so. I think this just recognizes that they're not breaking the law, and it sort of brings that above board. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But it is something that we need to be uh, aware of, that there is that, that potential, to be sure. Anyway, let's go back to the phones. Uh, this is Kevin. Kevin, welcome to the program. Greetings. How are you doing? Really well, thanks. Excellent, excellent. Um, I just wanted to say, with regards to uh, driving stoned on marijuana versus driving uh, inebriated on, uh, on alcohol, not that I've done either, but I would much prefer to get in a vehicle with somebody who has had a couple of puffs on a joint than somebody who's, you know, downed a couple of beers. Um, my greatest fear uh, of somebody driving stoned is that they'll burn out and fall asleep. <laughs> so I'm not uh, aggressive driving. I see it a lot with uh, and, and bad decisions with, uh, with people that uh, are drinking. Um, I, I really can't say the same for people that are uh, that have smoked a joint and um, you know want to get behind the wheel. I don't condone it. I don't do it personally, um, and that's that's just my thoughts on that. Yeah. All right, Kevin. Appreciate that. Uh, there was a study out a couple of years ago, and again, this is not to condone it either. But I think it, it gets to what Kevin is saying here, and, and this is from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, so a government agency in the U.S. Uh, But as the Washington Post describes it here, a new study from the NHTSA finds that drivers who use marijuana at a significantly lower risk for a crash than drivers who use alcohol. In fact, after adjusting for age, gender, race, and alcohol use, drivers who tested positive for marijuana were no more likely to crash than those who had not used any drugs or alcohol prior to driving. In fact, it shows that marijuana poses less of a risk than do painkillers and sedatives which is really interesting. So it says for marijuana and for a number of other illegal and legal drugs, including antidepressants, painkillers, stimulants, and the like, there was no statistically significant change in the risk of a crash associated with using that drug prior to driving. 
But overall, overall alcohol use increases your odds of a wreck nearly sevenfold. So it's a huge difference. So there's part of a challenge here, I guess, determining what the threshold is. We're even still struggling with that when it comes to alcohol. Is it 0.08? Should it be 0.05? Should it be something more, something less? Does it matter depending on the person's size, etc.? Uh, <clears throat> marijuana is trickier. As this story points out, in heavy marijuana users, measurable amounts of THC can be detectable in the body days or even weeks after the last time they used the drug. So if someone's pulled over and some THC is measurable in their body, are they impaired? What if they haven't smoked a joint for several days? Obviously, they're not impaired, but it's still showing up in their system. In Colorado, though, for example, they do have a legal limit. They've set a blood THC threshold of 5 nanograms per milliliter. But again, as this story points out, the number tells us next to nothing about whether a person is impaired or even fit to drive. And it's possible that in these states, they're locking up people who are sober. Is that, is that the trade-off? I, I don't know. It's, I get it. It's a tricky issue. All right, 403-974-8255. Speaking of driving, I'm going to talk about this uh, photo radar controversy in Edmonton. Got a few other things to get to as well. This is Afternoons on News Talk 770. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.